Uh, We're going to be talking today from Matthew chapter 20 about the revolutionary nature of the kingdom. But we're going to go from big topic, the revolutionary nature of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, and we're going to distill that down to speaking about leadership, being a leader in the kingdom of God or in the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so big topic, we're going to be talking about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, what that is, what it means for us, why is that revolutionary, and then we're going to speak more specifically about being a leader in that kingdom. And I'm going to try to slow down today. There's a ton of slides. We're going to be talking about things like Greek and all of that. And so please stick with us as we go through all this information. There's a lot going on in this text. It's not very long, but it's just it's, it's, there's a lot going on. And, 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 you know, I get really excited about it. And my prayer, that, my prayer is that you would as well as we go through it. And just as a quick recap, we've talked a good bit over the past few months about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And we've defined it as the rule and reign of God. And that should come up here at some point. We've defined it as the rule and reign of God. And we've talked about the kingdom of God existing on three levels. Okay, and this is an exhaustive, but it's a really helpful summation of it. On three levels. The first level is the rule and reign of God in the hearts and minds of followers of Christ, right? As we live according to God's commands and his leadership in our life, we are experiencing the kingdom of God from within, right? The second level of the kingdom of God or the rule and reign of God is as we follow God's leading and his commands and we bring his love and care to those around us in the world, then we're bringing the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of God, particularly his redemptive rule and reign into the world, right? And then the last level, that third level, is in the full consummation of Jesus' kingdom when he returns at the end of time and he renews and restores all things and all things are in full submission to him, then that's that culmination. Essentially, that's when we all find ourselves in heaven. Amen? And so these are what we're talking about when we say the kingdom of God. And again, although we're talking about the nature of the kingdom, we are going to get down to what it means to be a leader in the kingdom. And I just want to say before we get into it, you may, be hear, you may hear me say over and over this idea of leadership or kingdom leadership. That's something I'll say a, a good bit. And you may be thinking to yourself, well, this doesn't apply to me, Leon, because I'm not a leader. And I just want to assure you that if you claim the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are leading in some way. Okay, the moment you tell people that you love Jesus or that you're following Jesus, they are looking at your life. And the way you you live before them will either lead them to Christ or away from Christ. So you are a leader if you're a member of the kingdom of God. If the rule and reign of God exists in your heart and life, you are a leader in some way. So I want us all to realize there is application for all of us. And so we're going to read Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 through 28. We're going to pray together, and then we'll jump in. It is is really cool to have the use of my hands. Um, Without the the lapel mic is working, it's it's pretty cool. But if you see me do this, it's just because habitually, and I'll try to play play it out, you know. But Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 through 28, we'll read together, then we'll pray, then we'll jump in. Beginning in verse 20, it says... Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and said, and kneeling down, asked a favor of him, of Jesus. What is it you want? He asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. 
You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And this is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me, friends. God, you indeed are good. You are merciful, you are kind, and even still, you are just. Lord God, you've been kind to meet us this morning as we worship in song. You've been kind to continually forgive us our sins, and I just pray for your grace that we never remember, that though, that we never forget that though you grant forgiveness so freely, our forgiveness was not free. Lord God, just make us increasingly aware this morning of what you have done, Lord Jesus, on our behalf. And let us be compelled by your sacrificial living, the sacrifice of your life, to live that way in this world. Denying self, sacrificing that we may usher in the rule and reign of your redemptive kingdom into this watching and, yes, dying world. Lord, help us this day. Point out sin in our hearts. Grant us the grace of repentance. And grant us the power of Holy Spirit to be exactly who you are calling us to be as leaders, as servants in your great kingdom. Lord, we love you and we thank you this morning. Lord, I lift up Miss Reese to you. We thank you for granting her another year of life. And Lord, we just pray that you continue to bless her and let her know in special ways how loved she is. And Lord, for anyone else who isn't here with us, for those at home watching, Lord, I pray that you would be with them. And Lord, as soon as possible, we can be together in in person, hugging on each other's neck, chatting it up, just loving each other. We give you the glory and the honor because you indeed are worthy, worthy of all our praise and allegiance. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. So when I was in school, uh, particularly elementary school through high school, Uh, One of the things I learned was that if I wanted to experience the privilege of being excused from, say, an assignment or excused, have an excused absence or get out of school early or get out of class early, um, I needed the support or the cosign of someone who was a little more credible than I was and maybe still am. Right. I needed the support of the cosign of someone who didn't quite have as much to gain from my excuse as 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 they didn't have as much to gain as I did. But also they needed to be responsible for the choices that I that I made. Essentially, I needed a parent. Right. Because if I went to the teacher and I said, hey, teacher, my dog ate my homework. 
it was highly likely that she would not think twice to go ahead and give me an F for that assignment. And oddly enough, the dog ate my homework quite a bit. But if, if my mom called the school or called the teacher or sent a note supporting the fact that the dog ate my homework, it was likely that she would hear my excuse and she would excuse me from getting an F on that assignment. Right? And I think that this is a similar situation that's going on here with the mother of James and John. When she comes and she asks Jesus for this very specific, very special request. Now, at this, at this point in the book of Matthew, in, in, in chapter 20, the disciples have been with Jesus long enough to know with, some, with a great sense of clarity that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, come from God. They know that he is the Christ that they have been waiting for. But although that they, they correctly understood this, they continue to mistakenly believe that Jesus, as the Messiah, as the soon coming king, was coming to usher in a kingdom of this world. They continue to make, mistakenly understand what Jesus came to do as coming to set up a kingdom like all of the other kingdoms they'd understood around them. Specifically, particularly, the oppressive Roman kingdom that now ruled them. So while Jesus was coming to, 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 to usher in a kingdom that would deliver them from oppressive rule in the world, it wasn't going to look anything like the kingdoms they'd come to experience and understand. And so when Jesus tells them that, hey, now I go up to Jerusalem, as he does in a previous chapter, he says, I'm going up to Jerusalem. They automatically go, okay, well, we know through the prophecy that when King Messiah comes, he's going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to set up his kingdom there, and he's going to throw off the chains of oppression. So when they hear that he says he's going up to Jerusalem for the last time, they go, oh, okay, here it is. He's going now to ascend the throne, to set up this kingdom of the Messiah. Never mind that what Jesus actually says is, I'm going up to Jerusalem to die. Somehow they just filter out those words. And so based on this understanding of what the Messiah is going to do, the kingdom that the Messiah is going to set up, James and John's mom comes with this request. It hits her that her sons have been spending three years walking around with a king and here is an opportunity now to secure a place of honor. Now, we don't know whether this was James and John's idea, whether they put mom up to, his, to this or whether this was mom's idea. We don't know. But what we do know is that James and John are fully on board. Because when Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking, can you drink this cup that I am going to drink? These boys jump up and say, yes, we can. They're ready to do whatever it takes to have those seats of honor to the right and to the left of King Jesus. Now, when Jesus says the cup, he's referring essentially to suffering, right? It's, it's Old Testament prophetic language. If you ever hear about the cup of foaming wine, that means a cup of wrath. And that's what Jesus means. And whether or not James and John understood this to be the case, that this cup was a cup of suffering, they say yes. 
And they say yes because they understand this to mean that by drinking this cup, they will assume those seats of honor in Jesus's kingdom. Well, Jesus goes on to tell them something pretty interesting. He says, you know what? You will drink this cup. And the truth is that they do. Today is actually a very special Sunday in the church calendar. It's the day that we commemorate uh, the Apostle James as the first Christian martyr. That means as the first person to die simply for following the Lord Jesus Christ. We read that in the book of Acts, where he was killed by Herod simply for following Jesus. We also know that John drinks the cup of suffering as well because he's he's imprisoned on the prison island of Patmos and he's lived there to die and and rot. And, And eventually he does. He also gets the revelation of the book of Revelation there, but he dies in squalor on the island of Patmos. Yet Jesus goes on to tell James and John that their suffering will not secure any special place in the kingdom for them because... Everybody who gains access to the kingdom, not just the special ones, will gain access through suffering and self-denial. The foundation of the kingdom of God, of the kingdom of heaven, is suffering, primarily the suffering of our Savior. Jesus Jesus ushers in the kingdom through suffering. And so then the kingdom itself becomes an institution of self-denial and suffering. And what this means for us, brothers and sisters, is that if everything that you do in your life is exactly what you want to do, if everything in your life is exactly as you would have it, if everybody in your life is exactly as you would like them to be, there's no struggle, there's no conflict, there's no denial of self, then it's highly likely that you are not living in the kingdom of God. If everybody that you love is just easy to love, then it's likely that you're not living with the rule and reign of God in your life because the kingdom of heaven demands that we do hard things, that we love people that's not easy to love. Amen? Amen. The kingdom of God demands that we deny some of those selfish and sinful desires that we all have. And if we're not denying them, then it's, it's likely that we're not living in the kingdom of heaven. Living in the kingdom necessarily, by necessity, includes denying ourselves and embracing difficult people in difficult circumstances in the name of Christ. And so this means, brothers and sisters, that as we live for Jesus, it is completely reasonable for people not to be all that cool with us, to not like us all that much. I had a teacher back in 11th grade, whenever... Students would get mad at her, and and we got mad at her quite a bit because she was somewhat of an outlandish, eccentric personality. But whenever they would get mad at her, she would always say, well, they didn't like Jesus, and look what he did. Never truer words spoken. But it's the fact. If they did not like Jesus as he ushered in the kingdom, why would they like us as we live in that kingdom? We have to keep that in mind. But this also means that we're not always going to like other people either. But living in the kingdom means that we're still called to love them somehow. 
Living in the kingdom means to do the hard work to find out how to still love them. Well, Jesus goes on to say that they will drink the cup, but he doesn't have the authority to get them to sit on the right hand or the left because those places are fixed by his father. But here's the crazy thing about this idea of being to his left and his right. We already said that Jesus ushers in the kingdom through suffering, right? So when Jesus goes into Jerusalem to assume his throne, his throne doesn't look like a chair. His throne is in the shape of a cross. And as Jesus is hanging on this cross, the means of the ushering, ushering in of his kingdom, of establishing his church, as he's hanging on the cross, it's really interesting that not only James and John are not there, but none of the disciples all are there. All of them have fled. Instead, as Jesus hangs on that cross, Assuming his throne in the kingdom, to his left hangs a thief and to his right hangs a robber. Now, for all of you Bible scholars out there, I know what you're thinking. Both of those robbers, those thieves, did not enter the kingdom of heaven. It's likely that one did and one didn't. I got it. Calm down, Dr. Dr. So-and-so. I got you. However, this scene still paints an extremely powerful illustration. And what it tells us, brothers and sisters, that the people who will have the seats of honor in Jesus' kingdom will be the people that we least expect. The people who are sitting at Jesus' left and right will be those who we least expect. And Jesus says as much over and over again to the disciples, and they just keep missing it. Right before this passage, in verse 16, he says, So the last shall be first, and the first shall be last. I once heard it put this way, that the most famous Christian in heaven will have been the least acknowledged Christian here on earth. But I want you to think about that for a second, because that doesn't really resonate. I see the wheels turning in some of your minds, right? That doesn't make sense to us, right? Right. You mean to tell me, Pastor Mac, that Billy Graham, N.T. Wright, right? John Piper, Tim Keller, C.S. Lewis, Martin Luther King Jr. You mean to tell me that these won't be the elite of the elite in the kingdom of heaven? Well, if Jesus is right and I just believe he is, then they won't be. Then they won't be. Because according to Jesus, the elite people in heaven will be those who faithfully loved God, will be those who faithfully loved others, who lived sacrificially, who gave generously, and who never received any praise or accolade for it. Those will be the greatest in the kingdom of of heaven. Friends, if you haven't picked up on it yet, let me just say it plainly. The kingdom is revolutionary. The kingdom is radically different than anything we've ever known or experienced here on earth. The kingdom literally flips everything about how we understand the world to work on its head. Right. The world says get ahead by self-promotion. The kingdom says get ahead by self-denial. Right. 
The world says, get all that you can by any means that you can. The kingdom says, give all that you can in all the different ways that you can. For the disciples, just as for us, brothers and sisters, this way of thinking was revolutionary. It is mind-blowing. And it's mind-blowing because for them, just as it is for us, brothers and sisters, the way to get ahead is to jockey for position, right? The way to get ahead is self-promotion and competition. We got to get to the places of honor. This is the way of every kingdom we've ever known. And so this is why James and John's mother comes and asks Jesus for the seats of honor. And this is also why we read that the disciples get upset with James and John. The disciples aren't upset with James and John because they're they're upset at some moral wrongdoing. They're not that pious at all in this particular instance. They're upset because these brothers would even assume that a place of honor would be preserved for them above the rest of them. It was an anger born of competition, not righteous anger for wrongdoing. This this scene shows that their hearts were still seeking self-promotion instead of self-denial. Essentially, they were still seeking this world instead of Jesus' kingdom. But here's the interesting thing. Here's a, here's a very interesting thing. Jesus had already promised these men special places in the kingdom, including James and John. Right? In Matthew chapter 19, verse 28, Jesus told them, he said very, very explicitly, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me, those twelve, you will sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. It just seemed like that wasn't enough, though. Right? So not only would the apostles sit in places of honor, but they will also sit in places of leadership and authority in the kingdom. They will actually sit as judges. So with this being the case, with Jesus understanding that these men will be those who have authority in his kingdom, he has to nip this competition, this self-promotion thing in the bud. He has to let them know about the revolutionary nature of the kingdom and particularly the revolutionary nature of leadership in the kingdom. They are to be revolutionary leaders, not common leaders, not worldly leaders. So Jesus calls them to him and he teaches them that leadership in his kingdom is altogether different than anything they've experienced in the world. In verse 25, Jesus says, he says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. In other words, Jesus is saying, hey, you know that the Gentiles are those people who live on the outside of the family of God. You understand how they operate. You know how authority works and leadership works in the world. You get it. You know how you get it? Because it's how you are. You jockey for position. You're in competition. You're self-promotion. You get how that goes. It's not going to be like that in the kingdom. And the two words that Jesus uses, the one for Lord their authority over and the other for exercise authority, both of those words are um, used here in this verse. They can be that are translated Lord and exercise authority over. They begin with the prefix, the Greek prefix kata. Okay, I said we're going to say a lot of a lot of Greek today. I know everyone doesn't get as excited as I do, but but just stick with me. Okay, 
It's the Greek prefix kata, and that word means down. Anytime you hear the word kata, it means down, like the word katabino means that I come down or go down. So in context, Jesus is saying that they know that the rulers and the authorities in the world that they've come to experience, that they like to bear down on those whom they lead, right? It's oppressive language. They use their authority to oppress, to lord their grandeur over the people they lead. But the the disciples, the apostles, however, they are called to lead differently in the kingdom of God. Their leadership has to be revolutionary, altogether different. It has to be alien to the way that the world leads. It has to flip it on its head. And this morning, brothers and sisters, as I said already, we are all leaders in some way in the kingdom. And I want us to see at least three things from what Jesus says to inform our leadership in the kingdom. I want us to look at at least three things that can help us to be kingdom leaders this morning and not just worldly leaders as those who bear the name of Christ. And the first thing I want us to see is this, that kingdom leadership is marked by service. Kingdom leadership is marked by service or being a servant. Kingdom leaders lead because they care and not just because they can. All right. Kingdom leaders lead from a place of compassion and not just a place of position. In verse 26, Jesus says, whoever wants to be great must be a servant. And the word that he uses for servant is the Greek word diakonos, which is where we get the word deacon from. And the first time we see deacons being instituted in the Bible is in Acts chapter 6. And what's happening there is that certain widows in Jerusalem are being overlooked from the care of the church because of their ethnic identity. And so the apostles decide to elect seven very faithful men to go to Jerusalem and make sure that these widows are cared for. And so when applied to our message, our passage this morning, Jesus is saying that the person or the leader in the kingdom is a diakonos, a person who serves primarily for the sake of compassion or care for others. So if we're going to be kingdom leaders, the primary foundation of our leadership has to be a deep level of care and concern and compassion for those whom we lead. That has to be the very base foundation of why we lead. This is essentially the definition of servant leadership. I tell you, for the longest time, you had all these books coming out talking about being a servant leader. I got to be honest with you. I struggle to understand what they mean. Good thing, praise God for the Bible. Because this is what servant leadership means. Everybody seemed to be called a servant leader back in the days. I don't, know, I don't know if you guys know about all the different books that have been out, but this is servant leadership. Leading by loving and by caring for those whom we lead. Compassion and concern being the foundation of your leadership. You guys, as we talk about the Anakin way, we'll get to this part, this part in the book, those of you who've been coming to the study. So spoiler alert, okay? I know you've been chomping at the bits to know about the ordination process of priests and deacons, right? Raise your hand if you've been chomping at the bits. I know you have, Maureen, I know. But in the Anglican uh, ordination process, every priest like me, Pastor Benjamin, Pastor Drew, We're ordained first to the diaconate or to a deacon, and then we're ordained to the priesthood or the pastorate. And the reason being, because we are always 
for our lifetime, as long as we are priests, we are also lifelong servants or deacons. We're to never forget that. So we're ordained first to the diaconate and then to the priesthood. And I wanted to say this. I know Pastor Drew, it's probably good that he's not up here because he doesn't like receiving flowers to his face. It's just the way he is. He's a very kind guy. But I just want to say that I have been blessed. I have been privileged. I've been honored for the past six years as an intern as, as, and as a pastor to work under and learn from someone who embodies this idea of diakonos, of being a servant to such a great degree. For six years, I've watched this man serve in every way necessary to keep this church going and care for people. I've watched him climb roofs, plunge toilets, build things, tear down things, paint walls, do all of these things without much of any kind of of word to how menial it is or any of those things. Never heard him talk about any task being beneath him. Ever. Me, on the other hand, is a different story, but not him. Ever. As I wrote this sermon, actually, I thought about the time that I was snaking the toilet. You guys remember that story? It was, it was a uh, messy situation. But Drew has done that times ten, and that man has never said near a word about it. Brothers and sisters, for the kingdom leader, no task is too menial. For the kingdom leader, nothing is beneath him. Nothing is beneath the kingdom leader when that thing will show concern or care for others. No task is too medial for the servant leader if that task will serve the good of those whom they lead. The kingdom leader is primarily a servant. The kingdom leader leads for the sake of compassion and care for others. But the second thing is this. Kingdom leadership is, is, is foundationally others-centered. In verse 27, Jesus goes on to say that whoever wants to be first must be your slave. And before we go any further, I understand in the past couple of years, this term slave has rightfully, I rightfully become a hard term to hear. It it has been a hard term to hear for hundreds of years, if you ask me. But I just want to say as an aside, understand that whenever the Bible speaks of slave, It is in no way justifying the African slave trade or African-American slavery. Okay? Those who have used the Bible to justify the African slave trade or African-American slavery, let me just say that they are unequivocally wrong. Okay? So that's not what we're talking about here. Okay? So when the Bible... Right here in this particular issue, um, particular passage, when it's talking about slave, the Greek word for slave is doulos. I told you there's a lot of Greek. Is anybody feeling inundated with the Greek yet? All right, it's a lot of good stuff, man. The Greek word is doulos. And in Luke 17, beginning in verse 7, Jesus tells a parable of a doulos. And the lesson of that parable, we won't read it, but the lesson of that parable is that the doulos puts the needs of the master or the person they serve ahead of their own needs. And so in context, when Jesus uses this word doulos, when he says that whoever is great among you must be a slave, 
What Jesus is saying is he's telling the disciples that if they're going to be great or if they're going to be a leader above the rest, then they will have to put the needs of those whom they lead ahead of their own. Because the doulos is more concerned with pleasing the one they serve more than pleasing self. The doulos is more concerned with self-denial for the sake of others versus self-promotion or pleasing self. But what does this look like in our own lives? Well, here's some things for us to consider, and these were very convicting for me as I thought about these questions. When you have some free time, right, what are the first things you consider doing with your free time? Is one of the first things, are you considering giving that time to help someone with something they have need of? What about if you have some extra money? Are you thinking about giving that extra money away? Or are you thinking about just saving and saving and building bigger storehouses for yourself? I mean, what, what are you thinking about doing with the things that God has given you? If it's always and primarily how it can work for self, then it's likely that you're not being a very good kingdom leader or a kingdom person at all in that regard. Okay, now please, please, please don't hear me say not to take care of self. Pastor Mac is all about some self-care. All about it. Every Sunday after, after preaching a sermon, Pastor Mac likes to take about three or four hours of self-care. Okay, primarily wrap, tighten some blankets, his eyes closed. But let me encourage all of us, all of us, to work on thinking of others a little more and thinking of ourselves a little less. Because that's what the dualas is called to do. A good servant leader puts the needs of others ahead of his own. With, within reason, of course, within reason. But let's think of others a little more than we think of ourselves. And so the kingdom leadership is primarily other-centered. And lastly, kingdom leadership is Jesus' leadership. John chapter 13 records this incredible story. And because we're here in 2021, I think a lot of the significance of this story is lost on us. It's the story of when Jesus washes, washes his disciples' feet. And... The immensity, the revolutionary nature of this story is lost on us because we don't understand what it meant in this day for someone to wash somebody's feet. Understand that the foot in Jewish culture was probably the most deplorable part of the body. Okay? And if someone were to wash someone else's feet, what they were saying about themselves was that they were such a debase, such a low person in society that even this was something they would do to be able to survive, to make money, whatever it is. It was about as debased a task as can be found. But Jesus chooses to wash his disciples' feet. Jesus, God Almighty in the flesh, the Messiah himself, chooses to wash the feet of these men that he had been leading. What struck me the most about this scene, however, is what John tells us is going on in Jesus' mind right before he washes the disciples' feet. In verses 3 and 4 of John chapter 13, John tells us, he says, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. 
So he got up from the meal. He took off his outer clothing and wrapped the towel around his waist. And then Jesus watched, washed these men's feet. In other words, in other words, brothers and sisters, what John is telling us is that it was Jesus's awareness of the authority that God the Father had given him that caused him to kneel and wash his disciples' feet. It was Jesus' awareness of his exaltation, of how high and mighty that God had made him, that caused him to kneel down and engage in the most debased form of service that he could find. Who does that? Who does that? What kind of person realizes that they have been endowed with the greatest authority in existence and chooses to use that authority to serve those under them? Brothers and sisters, Jesus himself is revolutionary. Jesus himself is revolutionary. You see, when Jesus came and died on the cross for sins, he wasn't just fulfilling some duty that he owed us. Quite the opposite of that. Jesus Christ, almighty God in the flesh, understand that he had every right and all the authority to condemn us for our sins. Jesus would have been fully justified to leave us in our sins to face whatever judgment awaited us. But instead, he chose to use his authority to die for us and redeem us. The one with the authority to condemn chose to trade places with us. Jesus is revolutionary because Jesus chooses to redeem instead of condemn. Jesus is revolutionary because Jesus chooses to heal instead of break. Jesus is revolutionary because Jesus chooses to serve instead of oppress. And Jesus calls us to be revolutionary in the same. We are members of Jesus' kingdom because Jesus, the almighty king, chose to serve us. And as members of his kingdom, brothers and sisters, he has called us to serve others in the same ways. Kingdom leaders, brothers and sisters, are servant leaders because our king Jesus is himself a servant. Kingdom leaders put the needs of others ahead of their own because King Jesus himself put our needs ahead of his own. And therefore, brothers and sisters, kingdom leaders are revolutionary leaders because Jesus is our revolutionary king. Let's pray, friends. Dear Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for your mercy and kindness towards us. My God, I pray that we would be compelled to be kingdom leaders, servant leaders, for no other reason than you have chosen to serve us. Lord, I just pray that we'll be floored. We'll be floored, enamored, 
by what this really means. Oh, help us, Lord. All this we ask in your matchless name. Amen and amen.